Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Please don't skip forward. Please hear me out. It's coming up to Christmas and we want to be around in 2024 to keep having the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. And the only way we can do that is if some of you dig deep, throw your hands in your pockets and give us the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Uh, all you got to do is click the link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's a few quid to you, but to us, it's lights on, mics on, and we go into 2024 limping along, but still able to take the odd swing and keep carving out the space for conversations that thousands of you are listening to. So we just need a few of you to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And it's not a one-way street. I tell you all the time, you get a ton of additional content, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, entirely plea-free. So think of it as the little Christmas present you can get for yourself. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please join us. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And folks, there is so much going on and we've always been trying to see the wood from the trees. And and, and Martin, you know, let's let's tell the truth here. We, we're, unfortunately, we are social media animals in the social media age. Um, and, unfor- you know, I'd love to say we can wean ourselves off and walk away. Uh, I know you plan to one day. But, yes, uh, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, there's a smile in, on his face and a glint in his eye, but that Euro Millions ticket isn't counted. <laughs> we... No, no, uh, I do. I do. And uh, what Naomi Klein said to us has stuck with me, yeah. Yeah, um, but look, it, there's, it's been a lot and we've seen some of the most horrendous scenes on, on the streets of Dublin and, you know, we saw some of how it was instigated, how riots took place and how, how simple these communications were. I mean, like these groups were not sophisticated. They weren't hiding. You know, the, it wasn't hard to infiltrate uh, some of their um, telegram channels and it certainly wasn't hard to uh, to to not get copies of some of the WhatsApps that went around and it certainly wasn't even, it wasn't very difficult to find some of them who then spent the next day deleting their tweets because they're running in going, oh, uh, when I said, when I said everybody into town, enough is enough. I, I meant, um, you know, for the, the three for two deal on the snack box and supermax kind of thing. Um, so we want to come back to the topic, but we decided rather than us go on about it, we'll get an actual expert. And listeners who have been with us from the beginning will know Josh Malloy. He is a researcher in global politics and online subcultures. And Josh, it's great to talk to you again. How are you keeping? It's been a while. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, look, it's it's absolutely brilliant to to get your insight on this because I know I read one of your pieces well before the Dublin riots as it happens, uh, as you were monitoring some of the, the, the far-right elements that were operating on Telegram. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of, of some of the research that you were doing and, and what, you, what some of your findings were? Yeah, um, some, like most of my research focuses on subcultures and how they you know, form, formulate identities and in-group dynamics. Um, and yeah, that, that piece that you're referring to, I... I decided to to look at how the Irish far right engage with nationalism and republicanism, and I conducted like an analysis of forty five Telegram channels, um, using sets of keywords um, associated with prominent Irish nationalists, republican movements, uh, historical moments in the conflict in Northern Ireland, and so on, just to, to kind of get an idea of uh, what that converse, conversation looked like and. Uh, you know, what What were the prominent themes within these narratives? And, um, you know, obviously Ireland's like a, an outlier 
particularly uh, within Europe, when it comes to nationalist movements, often like a lot of radical right-wing parties focused on anti-immigration stances, whereas in Ireland, the dominant force in Irish nationalism is Sinn Féin and other left-wing groups. And Sinn Féin is obviously a left-wing, progressive, anti-establishment, populist party, and it doesn't rely on anti-immigration agendas. Um, And in addition to that, there's also been an absence of the far-right movement in Ireland. There's no radical right-wing party. Far-right movements that have existed have generally been very fringe, very small and very unsuccessful. And there's, um, you know, some political scientists who've looked into this have attributed the absence of a far-right movement in Ireland to the presence of Sinn Féin because it kind of channels all of that populist energy into that direction. But um, obviously, as we've seen, Sinn Féin has become the most popular party in Ireland and... You know, there's a, a space now opening for another anti-establishment movement because they become more mainstream. And so given that relationship between Irish nationalism and the far right, I thought it'd be interesting to see what that conversation would look like. And the idea actually came to me last year during the uh, the, the anti-migration protests that was taking place all over Dublin and they were kind of picking up steam um, actually throughout the, this year. And um, I remember there was a moment where the British far right started to become very interested in what was going on. And people like Tommy Robinson and uh, people associated with patriotic alternative were, you know, appearing on podcasts or coming over and filming documentaries. And suddenly posts from these individuals were now appearing within the Irish far right ecosystem as different activists were sharing this material. And this kind of caused some infighting among the Irish far right and created some division because some people were saying, well, hang on, you know, these people support loyalists, a true Irish nationalist would never you know, share this kind of content. So I thought that was, that was an interesting dynamic because particularly the current trend amongst the far right across Europe is there's this kind of pan-European solidarity um, even among the West in general. And there's an effort for nationalists uh, to forge relationships with other nationalists and see that they're sharing a common struggle. However, in Ireland, our history with colonialism and you know being ruled by the British created complications, and that was kind of causing you know some kind of unrest among this relationship. So I thought you know these were the kind of things that put the seeds of the idea in my mind. And I thought this will be a really interesting conversation. I want to see how they engage with this because they're always referring to themselves not as far right obviously they refer to themselves as Irish nationalists and within an Irish context calling yourself an Irish nationalist means something totally different so I thought you know this this would be interesting just to look at this on and 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 it really was because first of all nationalism can be quite often is a gateway to fascism to you know to, to these movements and but Ireland has yeah and okay it's fair to identify Sinn Féin have managed to to uh keep a lid on some of those aspects because of the particular brand of Irish nationalism but we clearly are not immune to that and as Sinn Féin maybe move more mainstream and the problems the socio-economic problems that we've all seen in terms of the housing crisis and levels of poverty levels of deprivation they give a, a comfortable breeding ground for some of those more um, extreme nationalist views. Uh, and what did your um, monitoring when you were looking at it, what did you kind of uncover and what did you see that, that, uh, that you think is, is really, um, is, is why we're starting to see this become, uh, even, uh, albeit small, certainly influential? Mm. Um, 
Yeah, so first of all, there was an, an undermining of Sinn Féin. They were portrayed as being ineffective for the cause of Irish nationalism because of their left-wing views, because of their progressivism. They were described as being, you know, in one case, as being absorbed by global homo. You know, this idea is like a mix between globalization and homogenization and homosexuality, and sort of like a gay ropa idea. And um, so I thought the... Sorry, the, sorry Annie, can, of, I, can I just, can I just, that, Say that again. They were they were global homo. Um, like I, I'd never heard the concept before. So this is kind of this indoctrination where we link. Of course, everything has to be not good enough to just give out about these. We have to actually then and make it kind of a misogynist anti LGBT thing as well. Is is that this is it? Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, the, the the enemy of nationalists is global are globalists. You know, and this it's not just. These people are perceived as wanting to um, erase traditional values and culture um, within different nations and to promote immigration and kind of dilute these places. So the the word global home is sort of like, a, it's like another version of that. It's basically combining the threat of immigration and kind of cultural homogenization and the imposing of liberal progressive values on upon people. Um, yeah, and Sinn Féin has been described as supporting that agenda rather than their, you know, what they they originally were focused on. Josh, for most of us, it's fair. I would have thought for most of us, it's fairly clear how Irish nationalism differs. In and and you know, this is this is our history. This is what we understand. How has this other form of nationalism? taken root or has it actually taken root yeah i mean it's hard to tell i think i would describe nationalism as you know particularly on the fringes like not just more mainstream Sinn Féin, but kind of uh, becoming more more of a contested space and um, i mean we've seen we see some organizing we've seen some groups called like republicans against fascism you know we should have made up as some former prisoners um republican prisoners including some who fought with dissident groups and some who fought back, uh, you know, during the conflict in Northern Ireland. And um, we see this kind of organising um, among these people to try and prevent the far right and claiming the mantle of Irish republicanism for themselves. So you see this kind of happening and you also see a mir- mirroring organisations among the far right, albeit they're very small and have a small presence, but they're also trying to promote themselves as, promote a form of republicanism which is against uh, which doesn't have left-wing values and instead has is formed by far-right ideology. So it's more of a contest, it's becoming a more contested space, but in terms of the support within communities, um, the far-right hasn't really been successful because it hasn't got a cohesive kind of movement. There's no kind of radical right-wing populist party in Ireland that's been able to channel all of this energy into the one place. There's no unity or cohesion at all. It's more very kind of, kind of a nebulous network of so, activists but does our but does our um population of say you know and we have it's it's a it's it's not as common as other people would imagine to have as many independents in your parliament as we do and you know it, it does seem to be that it's 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 comfortable enough that that some of the more radical elements in that and we and some of the statements that have been made in the doll you could attribute to, to to these these type of movements does that dissipate the 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 
political um, the the fear that oh, well, look, they don't have a big representation. Should it's just a just a ragtag of these lads in 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 the doll? I mean, it's hard to tell. Um, I mean, like when 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 you look at like the far right space, you have like number of parties. You have National Party, Irish Freedom Party, and so on, and they don't always get along. Then you have a, a bunch of activists, and we kind of look. Sometimes we get caught up and look at it just through that lens. You know, how many followers does a Telegram channel group? How many people can they mobilize at a protest? Or how many votes does a political party get? But I think, um, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't those a small group can change opinions and can shape narratives around events? And I think that can trickle trickle down uh, throughout the rest of the population. I think that's where, so when it comes to narrative shaping, so the, the real so the big success is taking wedge issues and jamming it into mainstream discourse. Yeah, yeah essentially. And so it's exactly what we, I mean, I think it's about a year ago, Tony, that we saw, you know, some of these very far, what we would have considered really far out there opinions, and they made it into the Irish Times. I mean, and, and we, we very clearly identified at the time that that was a slippage as such that that this was a wedge issue being wedged in but they've had more success since then um how are are other i suppose jurisdictions dealing with this josh is there a way to deal with it um i mean a lot of people are struggling uh to deal with it i I don't think there is any kind of set set way forward I mean, I think the root of the root of a lot of these issues is related to housing, you know, immigration, um, lack of investment in social services, and so on. And I think that that's, I think that's where a lot of problems are kind of being the source of a lot of these problems really can come down to. Uh, in terms of tackling the far right, I, I, I don't really, I don't really know. To be honest, I don't have any clear answers. I mean, a lot of people seem to have them, uh, <laughs> some ideas, but. Uh, I don't. I don't think there is a, a very clear straight straight path forward. I think. I think. Um. One thing I will say is that you're not gonna like. Um. I was listening to. Uh, Do you ever listen to conspirituality where they talk about the the confluence of the conspiracy culture and the, and the the spiritual influencers and uh, um and they were talking about one of there was a uh, a woman who had been kind of a nine eleven truther and 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 she talked she's talked about how it was actually it, it wasn't being told you know, you're, you're mad. It wasn't been told you're, you're wrong. It wasn't been told this. It was actually, you know, working with, I think in her case, she, they, they, someone had added on the Sandy Hook conspiracy and someone said to her, oh, you do know for, and I'm just going to mess up the name. So I'm going to say, you do know Martin lost a child in Sandy Hook and she'd been told Sandy Hook never happened. You know, and then and then so it, it it's very hard to, to reach people when they've gone to a certain level in this. And we certainly won't reach them with elements of and I put this to as a challenge to the people on the left as well. Just because our arguments are right doesn't mean that we're going to convince people because most people will, won't remember whether you're right and wrong. They'll just remember how you made them feel. And if you if you tell them that they're fucking idiots, um, they, it, that's not going to happen. So you can be you can be you can have your argument can be right, but you can be very emotionally wrong. And and quite often we let ourselves down like that. But but it is concerning. And uh, no, Martin, you wanted to come in there. Sorry. Yeah, Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there a scope for it? As you said, it hasn't really had a foothold in Ireland and it hasn't really had a foothold. It had, it had a foothold a, a few nights ago, Martin. 
Yeah, you see, I don't think that everybody that was at that was a racist. Of course you not. Know, you know, and, and I, don't, I, I certainly think that's how it was driven. And I think that there are people very rightly disaffected in the inner city. And, you know, it's a very easy scapegoat a group. It's very easy to bring out people when they're discontent. And I think that discontentment is something that needs to be looked at. We, we've seen it framed as a, an immigration problem, but really it's a, it's a housing problem that existed long before, um, refugees were ever considered a problem in Ireland. So how do we redress the balance? How do we, we recreate the narrative? How to, yeah, to recreate the narrative that the mm. far right is trying to shift. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, I, I remember after the, the aftermath of this, um, the, the stabbing attack outside the crash, there was a lot of frustration uh, aimed at, you know, why was there silence over the nationality of the perpetrator? And I think, I think sometimes this is something that I've just generally seen from a lot of the, you know, the, the far right, the, the messaging they're trying to push, or uh, you know, establishment media figures is they're kind of accusing them of like this lack of transparency, as if the state is trying to hide something that there's some kind of agenda at play. Because this wasn't the first incident; there were several incidents that they were referencing quite a lot um, within the discourse. Was a stabbing case at an airport and another one at a shopping center and you know it was either the perpetrator was revealed to be a migrant or there was the perpetrator was not named or photographed or mentioned and this suddenly aroused all the suspicion and you know conspiracy theories around it and i think that particular aspect um is is where narratives are often shaped i think when there's sometimes there's a vacuum of them a vacuum of information is very easy for someone else to maybe seize the narrative. I think that's one thing that I've observed. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult challenge. I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation is spread, and a lot of this content is very you know it's emotionally engaging. It makes you very angry when you look at it, and that's the kind of content that becomes viral. It's just a it's just a fact when it comes to um, the online ecosystem and how media and conspiracy theories and in, in my own. I suppose in my own observations, there's nothing like the work you've done, Josh. I see that it's not just immigration, that there are other issues involved as well. Uh, there's a very big cross-section of anti-trans people. There's, uh, you know, there are different cross-sections coming. It's not just migration. It's what we would call the imported wars, these imported culture wars. How do do people who with suppose came for the anti-trans issues suddenly end up defending the the anti-immigration views how does that happen i think it's kind of part and parcel of the culture wars um you know the people hold opposing constellations of values and ideas and beliefs and they seem these things seem to correlate and they seem to sit in these camps and you know if you were an anti-vaxxer you know you it was very likely that as was you know, a lot of the case with anti-people, very, very anti-vax, uh, anti-lockdown uh, protesters suddenly pivoted to anti-immigration very quickly and then, you know, they pivot to something else. Um, yeah, so that's that's a, that's a part of the, the issue as well. 
but but just on on that like i mean it's it's funny because we say things like the great replacement theory and you wonder how you go from the great replacement theory to say martin being anti-trans but one of the things that they'll turn around they'll say well of course they want people to be trans they want to they want the white people to stop breeding and and then they can't breed if they're you know because they're confused about their biology and blah 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 and you can link these conspiracy theories then like like josh used the word globalist um generally that means you know a jewish cabal <laughs> it means some form of uh you know that's that that and we always know then well well then why are the anti-immigration and 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 they're talking about about the jews well because secretly they want you to think that they have they know the secret sauce and that behind all of this there's um there's a jewish puppet master and it's it's you know it's anti scratch away at that and you'll find an anti-semitic trope without without any doubt but i'm interested back to the telegram channels that you you've been observing do you think there's a playbook? Is there is there a way uh, that we can look at that and say, okay, we can see how people, you know, as you said, uh, you know, are, are are brought in, given a bit of information, and then encouraged to actually, you know, whether it's get angry or get active or just be an arsehole online. Is there a playbook to do that or, or, or you know, like a pattern? Yeah. I mean, I think I see, you see similar narratives. I also follow, follow different far-right movements and you see similar narratives at play. You know, this, they promote the idea there's an anti-white agenda, you know, some liberal elite, uh, you know, they were in government, uh, the media and so on. And they're all kind of, it's not like these people are sitting around a table planning how, you know, the downfall of the white man. But it's this idea that these people kind of hold these certain, you know, values and ideas. And these things are kind of trickling down through the system. And yeah, it's tied to, you know, the great replacements and, and other kind of conspiracy theories. I think... And, and a lot of these conspiracy theories that they surface in all these different countries. But I think that, you know, when you're talking about um, the playbook, I think what's interesting is how interconnected all of this is. Like a lot of the misinformation, disinformation that spreads through these networks, you know, it follows similar themes. I mean, we even saw mobilizations in France uh, related to the protests in Dublin, those kind of ultra far right uh, nationalist movements who were mobilizing and marching because they wanted to be as good as the Irish. They wanted to to follow this example. So there was a lot of excitement about the Irish riots um, all over, among, among nationalist groups all over Europe. And there has been some excitement over, I mean, among other international observers over what's been going on in Ireland for some time. As I mentioned before, Tommy Robinson and these other figures in the UK, they were particularly interested in the Irish protests because of the optics of the protests because those women and children at the front pushing the babies and prams they look like ordinary people and they thought this is what we want you know in our countries as well so ireland has been in the last year has been looked at as an example by a lot of nationalist movements and i think it's something that's grown organically in ireland has grown differently than in other places and yeah there's, it's kind of people are drawing inspiration from that you said you said enjoyed, Josh, and I I think you said that word quite pointedly. In that, for most people, it was a tragedy, but these guys were just waiting for something that they could exploit. Um, and this is where we a lot of us have said, you know, how did the Guardi not know this one? Everybody else knew this one. It was very very obvious that this was going to happen at some stage in some place. And I mean, it couldn't have worked out better for, for those who get excited by this information. But it's not out of genuine concern. Am I right about that? Um, I mean, I think, I think there was certainly, there was certainly with the riots, I think there was certainly anger about what had happened. It was very emotionally, you know, um, very, it's like powerful as children being stabbed. 
Um, but I certainly think people who took part in that were obviously there for other reasons. I mean, in terms of like the the, pop, the, the recognition of far right figures who sometimes went to these protests from the live streams, I observed some of the people protesting didn't recognize these people. These people are very prominent among the far right scene. They turn up at every protest and then they turn up at their the selfie stick and the camera and they get told to go away by locals because they don't know who they are or they're suspicious of them and they're not you know they're not trusting them so i don't think that the, the you know they were that well embedded the far right were that well embedded in into these kind of local communities but as for those who who protested i i you know i think there, were, there was a lot of people just angry about what had happened and i think that was a very easy it was very easy to channel that into to rioting to destruction and a lot of that anger and that resentment would have been tied to other issues as well relating to ongoing tensions that have been rising for a while about immigration and as i'd mentioned before there were other flashpoints you know there was other crimes we also had the uh, the killings in sligo as well and to, to add to that list of these kind of yeah we, these we, kind of and the reaction to, 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 to joseph push well, go not even say his name yeah. excuse me but you know um Poor Ashley and Murphy, but um, and it's very and it's very clear that you know again. But I also think to the wider anger and the wider acting out and people that we maybe refer to as recreational rioters, and then how they were. So a lot of them were spoken about derogatory. Um, you know, there was a lot of classism came out immediately. Josh, there was a lot of people who spoke down, and it's one of the things that I've repeated on this podcast a few times. And um, I'm going to say it again, and I don't care if people get upset with me. I think if um, if you scratch at hate enough, uh, again, like um, my friend Adam Doyle, Spice Bag, wrote a piece in the Irish Times about the riots, and he said about people not having um. A stake in society you know if you're told you you know you don't matter then you you'll, you can act out and i can't, and i disagreed with him and i disagreed with him to you know face to face and said to him that that a lot of people they do have something they care about it could be a sister who needs a special needs assistant it could be a mother who's three and a half years on a waiting list it could be a father who's had a lot of problems with 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 uh you know in and out of work or whatever that the problems are there, there could be substance abuse issues there if you scratch at that hate that they see that that pour out they are there is a, there is love of communities love of friends love of neighbors love of siblings and I just think, you know, I know that sounds terrible. Uh, people say, you know, well, oh Jesus, he's going to sing Kumbaya now. But sometimes we need to, we need to try and uh, understand why there's so much, uh, how it manifests itself, and why people feel disaffected and 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 powerless because it could be some. There's so many other underlying issues. We call it Martin systemic um, state violence, structural inequality. And that's that. That is also at the root of this. And and I, again, people will be saying, "Jesus Christ, Tony, what are you talking about?" You know, um, these people were just robbing um, Air Force Ones. Yes, they robbed Air Force Ones, but they were also they were also. That's not what brought them out onto the street for the most part. Um, Josh, if I can ask you one thing though, as you know, you've you've been studying this. Um, you've studied global. You've studied global politics and, glo- and go- global conflicts as well for for a long time. Should we be worried on the basis that it's not just that what we saw in Dublin, but because we saw it in Dublin, we've seen it in France, we've seen what's happened in Hungary, we've seen what's happened in other places. Should we be worried that it's now actually it's a, it's on it's in the ascendancy? Um. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the main arguments that was previously said about the lack of success of the far right in Ireland was that they relied too heavily on borrowing narratives from overseas, such as like groomer issues and other narratives that had more to do with the US culture wars. Um, But I think we can increasingly see the formation of a more localized form of Irish far right ideology, which uses the template of Irish nationalism, which is something very deeply embedded into the mainstream of Irish society and the whole Irish political landscape. And it tends to absorb a lot of the previously tended to absorb a lot of the populist energy in Ireland. And um, they do this quite effectively by portraying Irish leftist nationalist movements as being destructive to the Irish nation. While at the same time, they construct their own unique far right Irish nationalist identity, which portrays themselves as a new vanguard of Irish nationalism that can take the reins, so to speak, and succeed where their predecessors have failed. And they do this by, by basically by countering the hegemonic narratives of Irish history, for example, claiming historical Irish nationalists and Republicans are, were actually much more aligned with far right thinking than that of the contemporary left. And they also draw parallels between resisting British colonialism and perceived globalist interference in Ireland. So one such way we can see this quite clearly is the use of the term plantations to describe the housing and migrants and centres across the country. And um, And uh, lastly, like all the far-right movements, they're very good at exploiting opportunities. We can see this with how they took advantage of the pandemic quite effectively. And lastly, it's more broadly aligned with trends which are happening all over Europe. So this is something that's taking place everywhere at the moment. Yeah, that that, that is worrying because I think you've you've really nailed it there in terms of the... The, the use of language as well around what they say about plantation but but one of the things that concerns us I know Martin has talked spoke about it before is the ability to push back what can be done politically what can be done from Leinster House to try and change that um, well first I don't think there's any easy answers I think a lot of countries are struggling with this problem at the moment and there's there's no kind of path forward that's been discovered yet but I do think housing pressures and social issues um, have a lot to do with the grievances that are actually being exploited to fuel anti-immigrant sentiment here in Ireland. So I think dealing with those issues first would likely help tackle the problem at its root. Um, and then secondly, I think dealing with the, the vacuum of information quickly and effectively is really important when it comes to incidents related to migrants, whether it's related to housing or issues that happen and as otherwise that leaves the space wide open for more nefarious actors to seize the narrative and whoever sees the narrative first has a has a clear advantage and that's where a lot of disinformation and misinformation can can often be traced to josh thanks very much for coming on to have this conversation with us. your knowledge is great in the area and it's very helpful to know what's going on in the area and i'd like to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us um Keep us in the loop. We're really interested in this stuff, so definitely keep us in the loop. Um, right. Listen, folks, so I'll share the link to Joe, Josh's piece in this pod um, and do check it out. I think it's really worthwhile looking at and it is interesting. I think it's quite funny, Josh, and if we can end on a little bit of a laugh, you know, the idea that uh, a certain MMA fighter has been pledged to support to run for president by uh, lads, uh, loyalists who um, <laughs> who are fight, who have said they'll fight for Britain is quite a, is quite a story and quite a that's a Venn diagram I didn't think I'd be seeing in 2023 thanks so much Josh I really appreciate it listen folks we'll be back very soon we're back covering events in Gaza and we will continue to keep you up to date as we can talk to you soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast 
subscribe now on Patreon.